I don't know if you've realized this, but the Bible is filled with records of people experiencing awful experiences, going through difficult experiences that make them ask whether God is still in control. When you look at Genesis, for example, after God had created people and they multiplied, the Bible says that they became wicked and it troubled God's heart because everyone was doing what was pleasing to his sight and it felt like God had lost control. And then God intervened through Noah and asked Noah to build an ark to provide an escape because he was going to destroy the world with the flood. And then after the, after the flood, God wanted people to spread and multiply and fill the earth. But there was this guy called Nimrod who led people to build a tower. The reason they were building the tower was not just so that they can be together, but so that they can make a name for themselves, and also so that they can be safe in case God brings another flood. It felt like God had lost control. But God came in and he confused them by giving them different languages and they ended up spreading. And you come to Exodus, you see the children of Israelites, these people that God had chosen for himself, are in Egypt suffering as slaves, being mistreated, abused. Their children are killed immediately after birth. And, and, and they cry out to God again and again. And I think they too were tempted to ask, is God still in control? And then God appeared to Moses and invited Moses to be part of his plan because he had come down to rescue the children of Israel and to make a nation for himself. We see it in the New Testament. Jesus comes in. He has come. He, he loves people. He heals the sick. And then he's falsely accused. And he is nailed on a cross. He is killed. Some of his followers must have been tempted to ask, is God still in control? And even after that, all those that followed Christ, believers, continued to suffer for his name. And when you look at the book of Revelation, which we are starting this morning, we have believers that are going through difficulties. They are being persecuted because there's an emperor that has risen and he wants people to worship him. He wants to be referred as the Lord, our God. And he is persecuting believers. And these believers in Revelation are probably asking the same question. Is God 
still in control. But let's look at our, our world together. Look at what is happening and how twisted the world has become. We are at a place where sin is being exalted and righteousness is being trashed upon. We are at a place where people that run for the wrong things are the ones that are being praised. And those who want to see the right thing done are the ones that are looked at as haters. We are in a culture where children are telling their parents what to do instead of parents raising their children to fear the Lord. It's a culture that promotes self-centeredness. A culture that does not only promote ungodliness, but wants to silence those who are godly. And as a Christian, when you look at this, you are tempted to ask, is God still in control? You look at your own life and the difficulties you experience. And you are a Christian. Whether it's sickness, whether it's relationship conflict, whether it's financial constraints. When you are going through all these things as a person that trusts in the Lord. It's easy to find yourself asking is this God still in control? Because if he is in control, then why am I not the happiest person? Why am I going through these difficulties if God is still in control? And I believe God gave us this book here to encourage us just as he gave it to encourage those believers and to assure us that he remains in control. You look at John, he's about 95 years, and because of his faith, he's sent to the island of Patmos so that he can die there. And this is after many attempts to kill him. And one Sunday, the Lord appears to him. And the Lord gives him the revelation. The revelation is addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I think the number seven here is important because seven is the number of completion. And so these seven churches represent the church of Jesus Christ. They represent all the churches, and that means that this letter, this epistle that was sent to the seven churches is also our epistle. And may the Lord use it to bring the same assurance and encouragement to each one of us so that in him we can continue to have confidence and that we can continue to trust him knowing that he is still in control. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We are going to focus on the first eight 
verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. <coughs> he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to know as we look into this that John is is a witness of what he is writing. He saw in the spirit the things that the Lord wanted him to see. And so he begins this letter to assure the readers and the hearers that what you are receiving here is not from me. I am just a messenger. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. Now this is a promise to believers. Blessed are you. When you read, not just the book of Revelation, because in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, the Lord says, blessed is the one who reads and obeys the word of God. So this, this promise here concerns the word of God. Blessed are you, you share in God's joy and God's peace, and God's promises, when you read his heart, his word, sorry, reflect upon it and act on it. You read it, you reflect on it, and you act on it. God's word changes our lives when we reflect on it, when we meditate on it, we think about it. It begins to affect our attitudes and our actions. And when we obey. The problem is the world is filled with Christians who know a lot about God's word, but they don't apply it in their lives. If you don't apply it, you will not benefit from it. We get the benefit of what God wants us to have. When we read, we reflect, and apply it to our lives. And that's what God expects us to do. In verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him, who is and who was and who is to come, referring to the unchanging nature of God. He's always the same. He does not grow old. He does not grow young. He remains the same. He was, he is, 
and he continues to be. That's the God that we believe in. And then John says, from the seven spirits before his throne, referring to the office of the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, referring to God the Son, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead because of the resurrection, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So just by introduction, John wants us to know that the Trinity is involved in giving us this message. And he wants us to know that Christ remains the ruler of the kings of the earth. There is no king that will reign beyond and above Jesus Christ. And why is this important? It's important for the original recipients because there is a king who wants to be worshipped. There is a king that is forcing them to call him Lord and God. And the Lord wants them to know that Jesus is the king that reigns above all kings. And he says to him who loves us. Let me just take a pause here. This is present tense. Who loves us. You wake up tomorrow, Jesus will be loving you tomorrow. doesn't say he loves us. It says he loves us. That means every day of your life, Christ continues to love you. There are moments in your life that you feel or that you will feel like no one loves you. In fact, some of us are crying to be loved. These believers, as they face persecution, it's possible for them to think that God no longer loves them. When you are going through difficulties in your life, when you are going through trials, it is very easy for you to think that the Lord no longer loves you. It is very easy for you to look back at the, some of the decisions that you've made in your life, and the enemy will help you see that and start blaming yourself and then look at God and say, God is doing this because of this. He no longer loves me. He wants you to be assured that his love is everlasting. And it is fresh every day. Does, it, it, it doesn't come on Valentine's Day. He loves you just as you are. And listen, there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. Nothing. Because he demonstrated his love 
by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And the greater love has no man than that. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And this is, this is love in action here. He loves us, but he did not just stop there. He showed his love. When Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he set us free from our sins. This is what happens when you got saved. You are set free from the power. First, you are set free from the penalty of sin because Jesus died for you. That means you will never die for your sins. You are set free from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the first thing that happened to you when you became a child of God. The second thing that happened to you when you became a child of God, you were set free from the power of sin. That means sin has no power over you. Before Christ, sin had power over you. But when Christ came to your life, he gave you power over sin. That's why today you can choose not to sin. Because sin has no power over you. Most Christians, when we sin, we make a choice. When we are telling a lie, we are making a choice. We know that we are lying. You have been set free from the power of sin. And every time we sin, every time we do something that the Lord, we know the Lord does not want us to do, or every time we don't do something that we know the Lord wants us to do, either by thinking or by action or by our words, every time we sin, we take the power that we have been given and we transfer it to the enemy. Because at the moment of sin, we are making a choice not to submit to God, but to submit to that sin. And every time we submit to sin, we are giving power to the enemy because sin opens a door for the enemy to come in. You have been set free from the power of sin. When Jesus Christ comes to take us home, or when you, when he calls us home, 
when we die or when he comes to take us as his people. He will set us free from the presence of sin. And when you are set free from the presence of sin, you will no longer be able to sin. The reason, one of the reasons you are able to sin now is because you are still in the presence of sin. But you have been set free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and when Jesus Christ comes, he will set us free from the presence of sin. And I am waiting for that day. I'm waiting for a day when I will no, lo I will no longer have to choose what to look at on television. That I will be free. I will no longer have to worry what I read on Facebook or what I read on other social media. I'm waiting for the day whether, uh, when I will no longer have to worry about voting for this president or that president. I'm waiting for the day that the Lord will set me free from the presence of sin. He has freed us from our sins by his blood and he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. He's made us to be a kingdom. That means we are his subjects. Salvation brings you to God's family. It gives you a place among those who are being sanctified. It takes you from the power of the enemy to the power of God. And you become a priest. That means now you can communicate with God. You don't need someone to stand in between. But it also means that you carry a message that helps people reconcile with God. Because you belong to his kingdom. You become an ambassador. You represent his kingdom here on earth. So as a Christian, as someone that has believed in Jesus Christ, every time you are somewhere, you need to remind yourself who you are. You need to remind yourself that you belong to God's kingdom and that you are a priest. Behave like one. You carry with you the message of reconciliation. You share the peace and the joy that we have from the Lord. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I like what verse 7 says. Look, behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
Now you should know that John is seeing this. He's not being told. He is seeing it. In this vision that the Lord allows him to, to see, he sees Jesus Christ coming with the clouds. That's why he doesn't say he will come. He's saying he is coming to the people who are suffering, who are being persecuted, who are almost losing hope. The Lord wants them to know that he is coming. In other words, the journey has begun. We should stop saying that Jesus will come and start saying he is coming. My wife and I, when, when we, we invite people to come for dinner or for lunch or, and we prepare everything and we are waiting, we look at our phones to see a text. Where are they? You know, and some, because my wife likes to cook, sometimes she, there's one or two things she's not yet done, and time is running out. And she asks me, "What's the time? Have they sent a text? Do do we know whether they are on the way or not?" And 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 we continue to do whether it's cleaning or will she move that there? Regency, push that there. We are preparing for the visitors, and then we receive a text that says. We are on our way. No, we are on our way. You don't know where they are. You just know they are on their way. Maybe they are five minutes away or ten minutes away or twenty minutes away. But all they want you to know is we are on our way, which means we are coming. We are already on the way, and that means now everything has to be the way we want it to be. This is where we stop doing everything and just focus on preparing for the visitors. Jesus wants his people to know that he is on the way. He is on his way. John is looking at this, and he doesn't see Jesus preparing. He's not packing his things. He's coming. He is on his way. There's a sense of urgency here. And if Christians looked at life this way, if we just realize that the Lord is on his way, I think Christianity would be different. And look, the people here received this message, and this are many years ago, and if he was on his way then, he is closer now. He is closer now. This is where if you are expecting visitors, you are no longer looking at the text messages. You are looking through the windows to see whether there is a car that is coming. 
that is parking at your parking lot. How ready are we to receive and to be received by this Jesus Christ who is coming? And if you are still asking whether the Lord is still in control, the answer is yes. He is in control and he is coming. And he continues to say, and every eye will see him. Every eye. Now I know some of us are losing their sight. There are people who are born blind. The Bible says that every eye will see him. The Lord will make sure that everyone alive at that time, everyone present will see him. And it says here that even those who pierced him, they will see him too. Even those who reject Jesus Christ, they will see him. But listen, it says all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Those that continue to reject Jesus Christ will see him coming and they will grieve. They will grieve because they rejected him. They will grieve because he's no longer coming to save. He's coming to judge. And that's why if Jesus is not yet your savior, you should think about this time. You should think of the grief you will experience at his presence when he comes. Because that question has already been settled. It's not about whether the Lord will come he is coming, and he is in control. If Christ is not yet your Savior, if you have not submitted to him, acknowledged your sinfulness, and asked him to forgive you and to save you, you have a chance now before he gets here. Because he is in control. And he is coming. He says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A and the Z. Alpha is the first letter in Greek. Omega is the last one. It's like saying I'm A and Z. I'm the, that's why I told you last Sunday that you can't put him anywhere. He has to be everywhere. He has to be everywhere. The Lord does not visit your life. He moves in. And when he moves in, he doesn't stay at one place. He occupies all the place. He has to be everywhere. And that's why as his disciples, the life that we live, we live in the context of the relationship that we have with him. You know, sometimes you can have a visitor come to your place 
and guests, your hosts, you show them their room where they'll be sleeping. And some guests are very sneaky. You have shown them their room, and then you find them going to another room. They, they can't settle in their room. They, they have to see how every other room looks like. And so you've shown the guest his or her room, and one day you come in, you find the same guest in your bedroom. And you're like, what are you doing here? And they say, oh, I, I felt, I thought I was your guest. I could go anywhere. No! <laughs> That's your room there. This is my room. This is my bed. And that will not be enough. You will start thinking about that guest now. Whether you should ask them to leave or whether you should lock your room. And sometimes we are tempted to treat Jesus the same way. We want to put him somewhere in our lives. We don't, have, we don't want him to have full control. We invite him, but we want him to stay somewhere in our lives and to let us live our life the way we want it. When Jesus comes in, he's coming to occupy every room of your life. Every room of your life. That's why even your vocabularies will begin to change. Some of the words that you are using before Christ came into your life, you will stop using them. Your lifestyle will begin to change. Some of the things that you are paying attention before Christ came to your life, you stop paying attention to them. Because there is a new appetite that he brings. But that's when we realize that he wants to be the Alpha and the Omega. That he wants to be everything. Such that when I love my wife, I am loving my wife because the Lord wants me to. When I raise my children, I do so because that's what the Lord wants me to. When I go to work, I do my job the best way I can because that's what the Lord wants me to. Everything that I do will be influenced by the Lord who is occupying every room of my life. And that is what God expects from us. That's why you cannot say God is first in my life. You need to say God is everything in your life. 
because if he's first, then there is second and third and fourth. And those are other gods too. He needs to be everything and then everything should flow from that. For those of you who, you know, in, in, in my country, Kenya, most of us don't use dryers. We, we put our clothes outside after washing them and they dry. God gave us the sun, right? We take advantage of it. Free dryer. So there is a line that you, you tie, there's a rope that you tie from one end to another and then you hang your clothes there. That's how our life should be. God should be that line and then we hang everything on that. Because he's the first and the last. We start with him, we finish with him. He wants us to know that. And the Bible says, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He is in control, and he is coming. So my brother and my sister, I don't know what is going on in your life right now. I don't know the questions that you are asking. But if you are like me and you are living in this world, facing this culture, you probably are thinking of your children, you are thinking of your grandchildren, you are thinking of your siblings, your cousins, and everyone else that is related to you who is growing up in this culture, a culture that when you look at it, you can tell the enemy is taking control of almost everything. And that is enough to be a discouragement to you. It is enough to make you feel as if there is nothing that you can do. God is giving us his message here to assure us that he is in control and that he is coming. He's giving us this message to encourage us that the enemy will not win. He's giving this message to assure us that even though it appears as if we are losing, we are winning because God wins all the time. And therefore, my encouragement to you this morning is that you, as you look at everything that seems to bring disturbance and discouragement in your life, everything that tempts you to think that the Lord is no longer in control, as you look at all that and consider all the experiences that you might be going through right now, that you may take a moment and look at this Lord, 
this Jesus Christ. And the message that he has given us, assuring us that he is on the way. Assuring us that he is the king that reigns above all other kings. I encourage you to take a moment and as you reflect on that, ask him. Ask him to take control in your life. Just ask him, Lord, I know I have been trying to handle one and two. I've, I've worried about this. And maybe I've tried it on my way. But Father, take control. I will follow. Give me the wisdom. Give me the strength. So that whatever I'm going to do from here. May be what you want 